Chapter One, Part Three of Twenty Years of the Republic, eighteen eighty five to nineteen hundred five, by Harry Thurston Peck. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Return of Democracy, Part Three. In this, there was no suggestion of the favorite Republican bogey of free trade. It was instead a lucid definition of protection, as protection had been understood by Lincoln and by the Republican financiers of his administration. Hence, the tariff issue was another weapon which bent and broke in the hands of those who tried to wield it. Seeing the futility of their efforts to rekindle the war spirit or to frighten the manufacturing interests, the Republican managers, in their desperation, descended to the lower plane of personal abuse, justifying themselves by citing the attacks which Democrats and Independents were making upon Mr. Blaine. From that moment, the contest became shameful and indecent to an almost incredible degree. No such campaign of slander had ever before been waged. One is justified in thinking that no such campaign will ever again be known in American political history. To recall quite briefly some of its details may act as a deterrent in the future. Mr. Cleveland was then a bachelor, and so the Republican condottieri felt no such scruples as they might have entertained toward one who had a family to suffer. They thought him a fair target for every missile. An episode in his past, and one that had been long since ended, was now revived, and made the basis for a charge of repulsive and habitual immorality. When the story was first published, its substance was telegraphed to Mr. Cleveland, who immediately replied with a characteristic message, Tell the truth. But the truth would not have been sufficient for the purposes of his opponents, and therefore the incident referred to was exaggerated, and became the nucleus of a shameful structure of foul invention and filthy innuendo. It was charged that Mr. Cleveland had abducted a woman and imprisoned her in an asylum in order to suppress her story, and that he had kidnapped and secretly immured a child which claimed him as its father. Mr. Cleveland had made himself hated by the baser elements in Buffalo through his fearlessness in suppressing vice while he was mayor, and now from every drinking den and brothel there was sent forth a swarm of vile and slanderous stories which the partisans of Mr. Blaine greedily caught up and scattered recklessly throughout the land. It was a debauch of slander, and for a moment the independents were staggered. But a brief investigation showed that, with the exception of a single incident, this prurient mass had oozed from the lewd imagination of the stews. It all resolved itself into the exaggeration of one episode in Mr. Cleveland's life, which had occurred years before, and which long since had been atoned for by the rectitude of his after-conduct. The following paragraph, from a letter written by the Reverend Dr. Kinsley Twining, an eminent clergyman of Buffalo who was conversant with all the facts, sets forth with sufficient clearness the truth which Mr. Cleveland desired to have told. This letter was endorsed by the most prominent citizens of Buffalo, and it was printed and circulated throughout the United States. The kernel of truth in the various charges against Mr. Cleveland is this, that when he was younger than he is now, he was guilty of an illicit connection. But the charge, as brought against him, lacks the elements of truth in these substantial points. There was no seduction, no adultery, no breach of promise, no obligation of marriage. But there was at that time a culpable irregularity of life, living as he was a bachelor, for which it was proper and is proper that he should suffer. After the primary offense, which is not to be palliated in the circle for which I write, his conduct was singularly honorable, showing no attempt to evade responsibility, and doing all he could to meet the duties involved, of which marriage was certainly not one. 
everything here was eminently to his credit under circumstances which would have seemed to many men of the world to justify him in other conduct than that which he accepted as his duty there was no abduction only proper legal action under circumstances which demanded it it is now believed by many that mr cleveland chivalrously took upon himself the blame of this transaction in order to shield a personal friend who was himself the wrongdoer but who had a family which would have suffered had the facts been brought to light this belief suggested to the late paul lester ford a dramatic chapter in his political novel the honourable peter sterling note twelve page thirty six of which many incidents are understood to have been drawn from the life of mr cleveland certain it is that there was no truth in the other stories they were repeated on the stump with hideous unctuousness by an itinerant preacher who had been hired to proclaim them but a move toward prosecuting him for slander brought him instantly to his knees the wretched creature ate his words and grovelled and begged abjectly for forgiveness he denied having any authority for what he had said and confessed that he had simply repeated the loose stories which he had picked up in the street the opinion of the independent voters was very well expressed by the new york evening post taunted with its enmity to blaine who had been accused only of official dereliction and with its support of one who had been confessedly unchaste the post replied that while an isolated instance of unchastity might affect the social reputation of a man it had no relation whatever to his civic virtues whereas the charges against mr blaine if true disqualified him wholly for high office since they were such as undermined the foundation of all civic honour as the campaign proceeded its tone became almost frantic those who clung loyally to mr blaine did so with a passionate intensity that made them quite incapable of reasoning the attacks on mr cleveland had filled his followers with the bitterest resentment it was known that the scandalous stories about him had been published with mr blaine's consent and that in fact mr blaine had sent the original copy of them to the republican national committee note thirteen page thirty seven therefore when certain industrious and not over-nice partisans unearthed a similar private scandal relating to mr blaine it was carried to mr cleveland in the confident expectation that he would sanction its use in the campaign to their surprise he sternly forbade any such action and notified the managers of his canvas to have nothing to do with it this was early in the summer a newspaper owner in the west who had no such scruples as influenced mr cleveland resolved on his own responsibility to make the matter public on august eighth the indianapolis sentinel printed the story with sensational headlines it asserted that the inscription on a headstone in the cemetery at augusta maine showed that a child had been born to mr and mrs blaine within three months after the date of their marriage upon this circumstance the sentinel made a series of editorial comments such as it is unnecessary to reprint but which were insufferably frank and brutally explicit mr blaine was stung to the quick by this shocking reflection upon his own honour and the virtue of his wife he at once telegraphed to an eminent legal firm in indiana directing that a suit for criminal libel be brought at once against the sentinel on september sixth he wrote a personal letter of explanation to mr william walter phelps who gave it to the press the essential portions of this letter may be quoted at georgetown kentucky in the spring of eighteen forty eight when i was but eighteen years of age i first met the lady who for more than thirty-four years has been my wife our acquaintance resulted at the end of six months in an engagement which without the prospect of speedy marriage we naturally sought to keep to ourselves 
Two years later, in the spring of 1850, when I was maturing plans to leave my profession in Kentucky and establish myself elsewhere, I was suddenly summoned to Pennsylvania by the death of my father. It being very doubtful if I could return to Kentucky, I was threatened with indefinite separation from her who possessed my entire devotion. My one wish was to secure her to myself by an indissoluble tie against every possible contingency in life and on the 30th day of June, 1850, just prior to my departure from Kentucky, we were, in the presence of chosen and trusted friends united by what I knew was, in my native state of Pennsylvania, a perfectly legal form of marriage. He then stated that this marriage subsequently appeared to have been technically irregular inasmuch as, through ignorance of the Kentucky law, he had not secured the proper form of license. Therefore, he had gone through a second marriage ceremony in Pennsylvania on March 25, 1851, a date which had usually been accepted as that of his marriage to Miss Stanwood. He concluded, At the mature age of fifty-four, I do not defend the wisdom or prudence of a secret marriage suggested by the ardor and the inexperience of youth, but its honor and its purity were inviolate, as I believe in the sight of God, and cannot be made to appear otherwise by the wicked devices of men. It brought to me a companionship which had been my chief happiness from boyhood's years to this hour, and has crowned me with whatever of success I have attained in life. To the discredit of human nature, this perfectly frank and truthful explanation had no effect upon many of Mr. Blaine's enemies. And up to the day of the election, disgusting innuendos regarding the affair continued to be heard upon the stump. Note 14, pages 39 and 40. Political discussion, indeed, rapidly degenerated into personal abuse. Even the cartoonists of the different parties showed none of the humor which is usually to be found in the pictorial history of a campaign. Some of the caricatures were frightful in their malignity. It was at this time that Gillum drew his hideous pictures of Mr. Blaine as the tattooed man, which produced so painful an impression upon Mr. Blaine himself that his friends could with difficulty restrain him from instituting a criminal prosecution. On the other hand, the pages of Judge showed an almost equally offensive representation of the Democratic candidates. Many persons at that time had a very poor opinion of Mr. Cleveland's intellectual abilities and regarded Mr. Hendricks as much the abler man. Hence, a cartoonist drew the Democratic ticket as a kangaroo with an extremely small head, but with an enormous leech-like tail. The head, of course, was Cleveland, and the tail was Hendricks, whose face appeared upon it and this conception, varied in a hundred different ways and published in crude colors, was worked out in a fashion that was most repulsive, as were also scores of other coarse cartoons, which today would be suppressed by the police. Late in October it became evident that the vote of New York would decide the result of the election, and both parties concentrated upon that state their intensest energies. Mr. Cleveland as governor had, as already described, offended the labor vote, the Roman Catholics, and Tammany Hall, three immensely powerful elements. Mr. Blaine, on the other hand, because of his Irish descent, his Catholic mother, and his professed sympathies with the cause of Ireland, and the so-called Irish patriots, was strong precisely where Cleveland was known to be the most vulnerable. Yet in New York Mr. Blaine had made one venomous and implacable enemy— this was Roscoe Conkling, with whom, so far back as 1866, there had been established something like a personal feud. The two men had always been temperamentally antipathetic. 
Conkling was overbearing, proud of his personal appearance, and bore himself with a swagger which impressed the galleries of the house, but which was offensive even to many of his own party associates. In 1866, in the course of a debate, Blaine and Conkling came into parliamentary collision, and the former was goaded into a withering blaze of scorn. Turning upon Conkling, he said in measured tones and with an air of indescribable disdain, As to the gentleman's cruel sarcasm, I hope he will not be too severe. The contempt of that large-minded gentleman is so wilting, his haughty disdain, his grandiloquent swell, his majestic supereminent, overpowering turkey-gobbler strut, has been so crushing to myself and all the members of this house, that I know it was an act of the greatest temerity for me to venture upon a controversy with him. Then, referring to a comparison which had been made of Mr. Conkling to Henry Winter Davis, he went on, The gentleman took it seriously, and it has given his strut additional pomposity. The resemblance is great. It is striking. Hyperion to a satyr, Thersites to Hercules, mud to marble, dunghill to diamond, a singed cat to a Bengal tiger, a whining puppy to a roaring lion. This shock to his vanity Conkling never forgave, the less so as the cartoonists ever afterward depicted him as a turkey gobbler. From that day the two men were enemies for life. It was Conkling who aided in preventing Blaine's nomination in 1876 and in 1880. It was Blaine who, as Garfield's Secretary of State, urged the President to defy the New York Senator and indirectly to secure his retirement into private life. Now it was Conkling's turn again, and he meant to feed his resentment to the full. His power in New York was great, and the Republican managers could do nothing with him. A political friend sought him out for the purpose of persuading him to make at least one speech in defense of Mr. Blaine. Conkling, who was sitting in his law office at the time of the interview, listened impassively to the earnest plea until the last word had been spoken. Then he looked up with a sardonic smile. "'Thank you,' he said. "'But you know I don't engage in criminal practice.' Blaine, therefore, took the stump himself and went about speaking to great crowds and endeavoring to win them by that eloquence and charm of manner which had made him famous. He was, however, no longer the indomitable political gladiator of past years. The strain of the conflict had told on him severely. Though he let it be known to few, he was acutely sensitive to the attacks that were made upon him so unscrupulously and often so brutally. He suffered even when he seemed externally serene. Moreover, his fellow candidate, General Logan, was not at all the associate whom Mr. Blaine would personally have chosen. Logan represented the opposing or stalwart faction of the Republican Party, and was in sympathy with Conkling and his friends. He was, besides, a coarse-grained, illiterate sort of person, the precise antithesis of Mr. Blaine. Before the campaign had ended, a very marked coolness came to exist between the two men, a circumstance that inspired the following bit of doggerel, the syntax of which was supposed to represent General Logan's style of English. We never speak as we pass by, me to Jim Blaine, nor him to I. Mr. Blaine had also well-nigh reached the point of physical exhaustion, his health was already undermined. His vitality was failing. As he was dragged about from place to place, stared at by mobs, having always to appear affable and interested while haunted by a premonition of disaster, he almost experienced physical collapse. The acuteness of his mind must likewise have been somewhat dulled, for when on October 29th, a few days before the election, he received at the Fifth Avenue Hotel in New York City a number of clergymen, he failed to notice a remark of one of them who made a brief address, 
This clergyman was the Reverend Dr. Samuel D. Burchard, who closed his speech with the following sentences. We expect to vote for you next Tuesday. We have a higher expectation, which is that you will be the President of the United States, and that you will do honor to your name, to the United States, and to the high office you will occupy. We are Republicans, and we do not propose to leave our party and identify ourselves with the party of rum, Romanism, and rebellion. These last words, so blazingly indiscreet when publicly addressed to a candidate who hoped to carry the pivotal state of New York by the aid of Catholic voters, were heard by Mr. Blaine, but their significance was not instantly appreciated. As he afterwards told his friends in private conversation, he was at the moment preoccupied in thinking over the answer which he was to make. He therefore took no notice of Dr. Burchard's peroration, though it must have been personally offensive to him as the son of a Catholic mother. He had, besides, himself just returned from visiting his sister, who was the mother superior of a convent in Indiana. Yet it was only after the delegation had withdrawn that he fully realized the serious blunder that he had made. He took immediate steps to suppress the word Romanism in the reports that were to appear in friendly newspapers. But it was too late. The Horatian maxim, volat irrevocabili verbum, was to find a striking illustration of its truth. In less than twenty-four hours, every democratic paper in the country had spread before its readers the Burchard alliteration. Every Catholic voter in the state had read it upon handbills, and had been told that Mr. Blaine had allowed a slur upon his own mother's faith to pass unrebuked. Still another political mistake was made by the Republican candidate on the evening of the same day. He attended a dinner in his honor at Delmonico's by a number of prominent New York gentlemen. The list of guests was a remarkably representative one, containing the names of men prominent in every walk of life. But unluckily for Mr. Blaine, there were many present there who to the popular imagination were associated only with great wealth or with wealth used for oppression. Such, for example, were Messrs. J. Gould, H. H. Rogers of the Standard Oil Company, Cyrus W. Field, Russell Sage, and H. D. Armour afterwards of the Beef Trust. As may be imagined, Mr. Blaine's enemies were not slow in using this so-called millionaire's dinner as a proof that Mr. Blaine was the chosen candidate of the rich, and therefore devoid of sympathy with the poor and needy. Some extracts from the New York world of the following day may be cited as typical, however absurd they may now appear. Yesterday was Black Wednesday for Mr. James G. Blaine. He will remember it with sorrow. The millionaires and monopolists banquet favorite candidates, but the people elect presidents, thank God. Is there a working man now who believes that James G. Blaine is sincere when he pretends to be the friend of labor? If so, why does he receive the homage of Gould, Cyrus Field, and the millionaire enemies of the working men? While Blaine and his millionaire admirers were feasting at Delmonico's last night, thousands of children in this great city whose fathers labored twelve hours a day went to bed hungry and many of them supperless. It was a black Wednesday for James G. Blaine. Mr. Blaine was at home in the midst of the monopolists and millionaires last night. He loves them and they admire him. But the people witness the shameless exhibition, and they will not elect to the presidency the defender of Jay Gould's schemes and the partner of Cyrus Field. From rum, Romanism, and rebellion at the Fifth Avenue Hotel, Mr. Blaine proceeded to the merry banquet of the millionaires at Delmonico's, where champagne frothed and brandy sparkled in glasses that glittered like jewels. 
the clergyman would have been proud of mr blaine no doubt if they had seen him in the midst of the mighty wine bibbers it was mr blaine's black wednesday beaten by the people hopeless of an honest election blaine's appeal at the banquet of the millionaires was for a corruption fund large enough to pay up new jersey connecticut and indiana and to defraud the people of their free choice for president every dollar subscribed at this late stage of the campaign when all legitimate expenses have ceased was given solely to purchase votes to facilitate frauds and to rob the people of a fair election every subscriber is an enemy of the republic still the results seemed doubtful tammany hall had not yet been won over its leader was john kelly a rough and ready politician but an honest man according to his lights he had opposed mr cleveland's nomination pronouncing him no democrat and declaring that if elected he would prove a traitor to the party kelly held in his control the vote of tammany hall and as a last resort mr hendricks was summoned from indiana to exert his influence he made the journey of a thousand miles and conferred with kelly until a late hour of the night hendricks was a party man of the straightest type an old-time democrat of the middle west he carried his point and kelly promised that for hendricks sake the tammany vote should be cast for the party ticket then came the day of the election on november fourth early on the following morning it was known that cleveland had carried all the southern states besides new jersey connecticut and indiana new york was still in doubt but it seemed to have gone democratic the new york sun which had supported the farcical greenback candidacy of general b f butler and which was bitterly opposed to cleveland conceded his election the tribune on the other hand kept its flag still flying and declared that blaine had won it was evident that the result depended upon a few hundred votes in the outlying counties of new york a very ugly feeling was manifested among the democrats they suspected that a plot was on foot to cheat them of their rights and to repeat the discreditable history of eighteen seventy six this suspicion was intensified when the republican national committee issued the following bulletin there is no ground for doubt that the honest vote of this state has been given to the republican candidate and though the defeated candidate for the presidency is at the head of the election machinery in this state the democratic party which has notoriously been the party of frauds in elections for years, will not be permitted to overthrow the will of the people. Mobs filled the streets in the vicinity of the newspaper offices, watching intently every bulletin that was posted, and from time to time breaking out into savage cheers or groans. Violence was attempted in several cities, and bodies of men marched up and down as they had done at the outbreak of the Civil War. The excitement was most intense in the city of New York, where it was believed that Jay Gould, who controlled the Western Union Telegraph Company, was leagued with the more unscrupulous of the Republican managers to tamper with the delayed returns. Gould was one of the most sinister figures that have ever flitted bat-like across the vision of the American people. Merciless, cold-blooded, secretive, apparently without one redeeming trait, this man for many years had been the incarnation of unscrupulous greed a railway wrecker, a corrupter of the judiciary, a partner of the notorious Fisk, the author of the dreadful panic of Black Friday in 1873 when he drove hundreds of victims to ruin, to self-murder or to shame, Jay Gould, even at the present day, typifies so vividly all that is base and foul as to cause even the mention of his name to induce the shudderings of moral nausea. No sooner was his repulsive personality associated with the belief that the election returns were being altered than popular indignation broke loose from all restraint. 
An angry mob marched to the Western Union building with shouts of, Hang Jay Gould! Gould added to his other despicable traits the quality of cowardice. Fearing for his life, he besought police protection, and then from some inner hiding place he dispatched a telegram to Mr. Cleveland, conceding his election and effusively congratulating him upon it. Note 15, page 48. On the evening of the 18th of November, the official count was ended and then the country knew that a plurality of 1,149 votes in the state of New York had given the presidency to Mr. Cleveland. On that same night, Mr. Blaine appeared at the door of his house in Augusta, Maine, and said to a somber, sullen crowd which had assembled there, Friends and neighbors, the national contest is over, and by the narrowest of margins we have lost. The election of Mr. Cleveland marks an epoch in our national history, the importance of which can only now be fully understood. It meant that, with the exception of the Negro question, the issues springing from the Civil War had been definitely settled. It meant the beginning of a true reunion of all states and sections. It meant that the nation had turned its back upon the past and was about to move forward with confidence and courage to a future of material prosperity and to a greatness of which no one at that time could form an adequate conception. And it meant, although none then surmised it, that as a result of new conditions there was ultimately to be effected a momentous change in the whole social and political structure of the American Republic. End of chapter 1